0: Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles now to the book of Acts, we turn now to the word of God, which has encouraged us uh, time and again as we look in the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 9, our scripture reading will come from Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. Last week, we looked at the radical conversion and commission of Saul. And we continue in his life as here it chronicles his testimony and the impact that he had, the effects of a changed life. Acts chapter 9, verse 19 through 31. And we begin in the middle of verse 19 there. The scriptures read, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Let's bow together in prayer before we begin our study. Father in heaven, what a message of encouragement this is, the testimony of a changed life, and we pray, Father, as we study your word, you would encourage us, knowing, O Father, that you are in the process of changing lives, even here. So change ours, O Father, as we open our hearts to you, asking that your spirit would illumine our minds to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. An article in the Washington Post written by Aaron Operley is about a man whose name was Chris Simpson, a 38-year-old garbage man and former Marine with a tattoo across his knuckles which read, Pure... Hate, because it consumed him. In 2010, Chris Simpson led a white pride march, January of 2012. He abandoned the white supremacist movement. In April of 2012, he was baptized as a Christian. Hate, quote, said Simpson, will blind you to so many things. It will stop you from having so many things. It consumes you. After the loss of his first child, Simpson had a lot of hatred and anger built up inside. The white pride movement gave Simpson a place to direct his anger and frustration at people of other races. Things began to change, however, during a family trip to Walmart. One of his children looked down the aisle and up at Simpson and said, Daddy, we can't go down that aisle. There's a blank down there. It was time to make a change for them. Simpson said of his children, I don't want them following that path. After his, he and his family watched the movie, Christian movie, titled Courageous, Simpson began attending church. and One month later, he was baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ. Quote, any kind of burden I carried before I let them go. There's no need to carry things that happen in the path. I forgave all those who wronged me, and asked forgiveness from those that I have wronged. He left that behind. He's even going through the Freedom, Inc. tattoo removal program, starting with the word hate. Anger and hatred Characterized the man that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at the conversion and the commission of a man named Saul, we were introduced to him in Acts chapter 7 and at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 to the stoning of Stephen, at which the scriptures tell us that the other young men who were stoning Stephen laid their robes at his feet, indicative that he had a role in it, perhaps even a leadership role, and certainly he gave his vote for the death of Stephen But the profile of Saul was one who was brought up in a strict pharisaical and rabbinic teaching and tradition, who was zealous for the law, so zealous that he had a hatred for men and women of the way, a term referring to Christians. In Acts chapter 26, he testifies that he would lock up many of these Christians in prison. He would punish them when he found them in the synagogues. He would try to force them to blaspheme. He would pursue them to foreign cities. And the scriptures tell us that he was furiously enraged at them. He was not some nice Jewish temple guard who was doing his duty. No, he was a man who was filled with hatred towards Christians, who was filled with rage, who was filled with anger. He hated Christians so much he said, Out In Acts 22, he says, to destroy the church. And no believer would have wanted to be on the receiving end of this rampaging Christian killer. But despite the anger, despite the animosity, despite the hatred that filled his heart, God, in his grace, miraculously saved him on the road to Damascus. There was nothing Paul did to save himself. The grace of God reached down and changed that stony heart into a heart of flesh, all because of God's choice that Saul might be a witness for the Lord Jesus. In verse 15 here of Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to him, Go, he says to Ananias, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, And the sons of Israel. Saul was chosen by God to be a witness of the Savior to the world. And so we saw his conversion and his commission. And now we see a number of effects of his testimony. A number of effects of his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at this morning that the salvation that he had received in the Lord Jesus Christ produced change. It elicited enemies. It faced skepticism, and it faced conflict, but it also brought about blessing in the church. These are the effects of Paul's salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so let's look at them more carefully today. Saul's salvation in the Lord Jesus produced change. First of all, verse 19. Several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So great was the transforming power of God that there was a 180 degree turn from his desire to destroy the church to supporting the church, from his desire to kill Christians to those who would be an individual as he was to proclaim and preach Jesus. This statement that he made, he is the Son of God, was the message that he proclaimed. And it was a message of the deity of Christ. It was about Jesus being the Messiah, the chosen one. And Paul preached Christ as the Son of God. And this proclamation of Jesus didn't take place years later. It didn't take place a few months later, or even days. Verse 20 says, immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus. Immediately, just like the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. When Jesus granted her eternal life, she ran to tell the villagers, come and see this man, and began to invite others. The best thing in the world that happened to her, the best thing, the best news that he had known was that Jesus was the Messiah and he wanted everyone to know the truth. The longing of the heart of the people of Israel was for a Messiah to come. And this was good news. Salvation from sin, from condemnation, and that the Lord Jesus was a Son of God. There's no shame, nor any hesitancy or fear, because the magnitude of the news outweighed everything else, the good news. And when one realizes the magnitude of our sin, the blindness that we were in, the bondage that we were in, the destiny that we had to hell. But God, in His grace, in His mercy, saved us, forgave us, granted to us new life, and gave us eternal life in heaven. How could we keep from telling others? Isn't that what you want people to know? is the most important thing to you. You know, I remember right after I was saved, right after I received the Lord as my Savior, I wanted everyone to know. I wanted all my friends to know. I had such a desire for them to know because I knew that if they did not receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior, if they didn't turn from their sin, they would be destined and they are destined to hell. And I wanted them to have eternal life. I wanted them to have freedom from their sin and the guilt, knowing the predicament that they're in. I wanted them to know the grace of God. Isn't that what you want people to know? Is the greatest thing in the world to you? You know, many people, they have a lot of things to share. They have a lot of things to share. I'm sure you do, many of you do, especially those of you who who have Facebook accounts. Did you know there are 1.23 billion active, active monthly users on Facebook? There's some seven and a quarter billion people in the world. Okay, so that means about 17 percent of all people have an active Facebook user account. That's a lot of people. 1.23 billion. And some people if you ever, I don't log in that much. I, I don't use it very much at all. But some people, they broadcast everything. I don't know if you ever notice. What do people talk about the most? What, what, what's on your, on, your, on your streaming list? It's either like food, or it's like their kids, or their kids and food, or it's like politics, or like crafts, or like whatever they're thinking of. And if I were to have somebody look at your Facebook page, somebody who completely doesn't know you, and they were to look and say, boy, what what does this person love the most? What do they love to show the world the most? What would they say about your feed? What would they say about what you love to tell all of your friends, your fake friends and your like friends? What would they say about you? Would they say, wow, this person is very devoted to food? (laughs) Or would they say, this person's very devoted to God? Or they love the Bible, or they love their church, or they're at least with their church friends, or there's something about you that talks about how you are a child of God, a Christian, about Jesus, about something. Or would they say, I can't even tell if they're a Christian or not. They don't even put a like on the church website. (laughs) What is it that you want the world to hear? Maybe you could think about that. For Paul, his Facebook page would be all about Jesus. About Jesus being the son of God. What do you think Jesus, if he had a Facebook page, what would he put? Scripture. Exalting God. Saul preached Christ. Christ immediately. And from hating Christ to loving Christ, his life was so radically changed. Verse 21, it says, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? It was shocking. The transformation was night and day. They jaw dropped their jaws. I mean, it just was so transformative. And that is indicative of a person who's genuinely saved. You cannot be saved without having some evidence, some transforming thing in your life. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is not to say that everyone's going to be like Saul. Saul. But it is to say that there will be some transformative evidence in one's life. Once a person is truly saved, the Spirit of God indwells them. And the Spirit of God begins to produce within them the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty two and 23. That of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. They begin to look at the world differently in the light of a worldview that only God can give. They began to look at it through the lens of the Spirit of God, through what he teaches them out of the Word of God. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is night and day. When they look at the Bible, they understand, and God illumines their mind. John sixteen thirteen, Jesus said, But when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So, having laid hold of all that he learned about Jesus, Saul wielded that knowledge with skill. And it says there in the text, it says there in the text, verse 22, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. The word for proving there means to knit together from several strands. You might think of it as knitting or crocheting. You know, you have to count how many times. And I don't know how they, I mean, it just is a, they can sit there and knit forever and and just this beautiful hat. But if you count wrong or if you decide that you're going to use whatever, you just can't do it willy-nilly. It comes out and he continued to knit together arguments from where? The Old Testament. The Old Testament Trained was Paul in legal argumentation. Trained was Paul under the best of the rabbis, Gamaliel in Israel. Trained was Paul in learning the scriptures and he knit them all together, proving that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And that is the gospel. The gospel is objective revelation of the truth of who Jesus is. And if somebody denies that, it doesn't matter what kind of experience they have, they don't know Christ. Somebody denies that Jesus is God, though produced and though exposed to the truth of Scripture, they don't know God. Jesus is the Son of God. And Saul serves for us as an example. He serves for us as a practical example that God has called us to continue to learn, to grow to be able to be mature, to be faithful handlers of the Word of God, the Word of truth. Just as we teach the children in Sunday school, 2 Timothy 2.15, to be diligent, to present yourselves to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. So Bible study is not a part of your life That is a responsibility that you have. I encourage you to be diligent, to present yourself to God as a workman. A workman, a good workman who's unashamed. If somebody were to ask you, well, what do you believe about this or that? Well, you could say, well, I remember studying that. I'll have to look it up, but here's what I remember. And you'll be able to weave together an answer For the person who asks of you, Saul's salvation in Christ produced change. But Saul's salvation in Christ also elicited enemies. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with with him. But their plot became known to Saul. Now that phrase there that says when many days had elapsed is not a short period of time. Literally, it means sufficient days. And in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church at Galatians, verse 15, and this is what he says to them about this period, period before he goes to Jerusalem. It says, but when God who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Arabia being Nabataean Arabia, not Saudi Arabia. They're two different places. Then, verse 18 of Galatians 1, three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who's Peter. Peter. And stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So there was a period between verse 22 and verse 23 that many days, or literally sufficient days, meaning a period of three years. Three years he had gone away into Arabia, Nabataean Arabia, and the Bible doesn't say why. There have been a number of scholars that have suggested why. Some say, well, early church fathers, by tradition, believe that he went there, he traveled there as a missionary. Others say that, well, he fled there to protect himself from the Jews who were after him, after they had heard about his newfound faith. And another person suggested that was about the same time that the disciples spent with the Lord Jesus in their training, and so the same had to happen. But as I mentioned, the Bible doesn't say why he went there. I think it was time to be with the Lord and to learn all that the Lord had in store for him, for his life and his commission. But whatever it was, he disappeared off the scene in Arabia for three years. But upon his return, he returned like a roaring lion preaching Christ. So well known was his conversion to the Lord His conversion to Christianity that the Jews plotted against him. He elicited enemies. His former friends were now his enemies. He was now on the most wanted list. The one who had been the predator had now become the prey. The hunter is now the hunted. But, verse 25, his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. You might remember from the book of Joshua, there was a story about Rahab, the harlot. She had a home that was built into the side of the wall, uh, the wall of the city. And so too, people would build their homes with a window, oftentimes the side of the wall there in the city, so it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to have a window like that. And in Damascus, there were some who were believers, and they let him out, and they helped him to escape by lowering him in a large basket outside and he escaped when someone lives a godly life when somebody lives a bold life when somebody preaches Christ as God there will be people who will not like it it's a promise in fact if paul writes to timothy in 2 timothy 3:12 indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted It may not be to the extent that Paul would be or those in oppressive countries, but there will be antagonism if you let others know that you are a Christian and what you believe and what you stand for. The bolder you are, oftentimes the more opposition there will be. You will have an effect upon other people. When others know that you are a believer in Christ and you behave faithfully as a godly individual... There will be opposition. 2 Corinthians 2.14. If you turn your Bibles there, there's a very important passage about our effect as Christians. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Just your very life. If you live a godly life, as Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Corinthians 2.14. It says this, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he writes this in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. One, meaning those who are being saved, one one being those who are saved, to one, an aroma of death to death, to the other, an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Do you know what this passage pictures? It pictures God. Pictures God who is leading us, verse 14, leading us in triumph in Christ. Back in biblical times, when there was a military victory, there would be a processional into the city. Maybe you've seen it in some film or movie. There'd be a processional of all of the victorious soldiers. And there's God who leads us in a triumphal entry, just like uh, 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 a, a Roman uh, a centurion or whomever would lead the victorious soldiers into a city, and the people would cheer and they would throw rose petals and flower petals, as we would might throw graffiti or uh, c- confetti, I should say. <laughs> but the victorious soldiers, what would happen is that they would come into the city. There'd be all these rose petals which would line the floors, and you would walk on them. You would trample on them. And when the soldiers would walk on these petals, there would be an aroma, a perfume smell. It would be a sweet aroma that would permeate the air like perfume. Well, to the soldiers who would be coming in to the cheers and the accolades of the people, they 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 would be it would be a smell of a sweet smell, a sweet smell of victory. But do you know who would be in the very back? In the very back of this long processional would be all bound in chains, all of the captured enemies. They would be paraded down the street, and when they smelled that aroma of the petals, to them, it wouldn't be the smell of victory. It would be that they were walking to their own execution. It would be an aroma of death. That's what it means here. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are being perishing you have an aroma that comes from your testimony in Christ to the saved it's an aroma of life to life what a joy a victorious Christian who is walking in the ways of God, who is living a godly life, who proclaims Christ, you will be, to other Christians, a refreshing breath of fresh air. But to those who are not, it's an aroma of death to death. You, as a Christian, are offensive to them. So, don't be surprised by antagonism to you. The world won't like you. So don't try to please the world. Don't try to cover up your aroma by rolling in the mud so that you can somehow relate to them. That's not what the Scripture is saying. If you're living a godly life to those who don't love Christ, by your very life and proclamation, it's an affront to their lifestyle. So don't be surprised. If you have people who don't know Christ, who just don't like you because you're a Christian. It's natural. The Scriptures tell us that already. You have a changed life. And the aroma from your testimony of one who lives a godly life will be a joy to others, an encouragement to those who are your brothers and sisters. But to others who don't, they will be offended. Calvin Miller, who writes in his book, Jesus Loves Me, writes this, quote, I think the most vibrant missionaries I have met are medical doctors serving in lonely outposts of the Arab world. These physicians and nurses are aware that in winning a Muslim to Christ, they condemn their converts to ostracism and persecution, even martyrdom. One doctor told me, how do you think I feel? in longing to lead people to Christ, knowing that the moment my patients receive Christ, they face a life and death contempt in this culture. It must seem pointless, I said. Pointless, he said? This is the point of the gospel. The cost and consequences of receiving Christ is the entire Point of Luke 9:23. Take up your cross and follow me. It is the cross of crucifixion, of death, of that of persecution. So many times, just as Paul had experienced, your own testimony might elicit enemies. It produced change. That's what Paul's salvation in Jesus produced. Produced change. It elicited enemies. Thirdly, he faced skepticism and conflict. Skepticism and conflict. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, verse 26, not believing he was a disciple. Paul escapes. Paul escapes out of Damascus, and he goes on to Jerusalem. And what a place for ministry, right? What a place. This is the central place where it all began. And you might have thought, here, Paul is going to Jerusalem Wow, look at this, our featured guest speaker. Bring out the stage, turn on the lights, go out on the bullhorn and corral everybody. Hear ye, hear ye. Here's the great persecutor turned evangelist. Ding, 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 come one, come all. Instead, his presence evoked fear, fear in the lives of people likely many know Knew of friends and family that Paul had thrown in prison or maybe even approved of their murder. Can you imagine that? An email, friend request, Saul of Tarsus. Dismiss, <laughs> spam, decline. They avoided him like a plague. Maybe it was right. I don't know. I was certainly. I think to myself, it would be hard, but certainly it was a genuine conversion. They perhaps had a lot of skepticism, and understandably so. Understandably so. But in the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, He had changed His ways. God had changed His heart. Maybe it might be, a, maybe they thought that. It was a trap, perhaps, to catch the apostles. Maybe they thought it might be a ploy to be able to find all of the inner circle. I would guess that his violent reputation preceded him, and that's what evoked his great, the great fear, but no one but Barnabas. For Barnabas had heard, he had seen, and he vowed for him, accepted him. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, That's what his name means. Barnabas would later become a good friend of Saul. And Barnabas, by the way, was a very highly respected individual in the Christian community there. He was a very highly regarded individual, and he vouched for the genuineness of his conversion. Saul had proven by his conversion. And when the testimony of that came out, he had came out because Barnabas had brought him to the apostles. Well, there was acceptance. There was acceptance because of his change in behavior. How at Damascus, the text says, he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And this was a visible event. And so, rightly, they accepted him. Verse 28, he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. And this happened over a period of two weeks, as we saw in Galatians chapter 1, about 15 days. He had, he had come to Jerusalem just to see Cephas or Peter stayed with him, and he began to preach Christ once again. And he began to argue and debate and talk with the Hellenistic Jews. Now, the Hellenistic Jews, as you might recall, they were the Jews who had adopted the customs of the Greek culture. Many of them had lived outside of Jerusalem and Judea. They had adopted many of the Hellenistic Greek ways, perhaps language, dress, and their food preferences, etc., and then they returned to live perhaps at the end of their days or to have business in Jerusalem, and they didn't speak the local language, or they felt much more comfortable and in their new uh, culture, and so they set up their own synagogues. It only took ten men in order to form a synagogue, and so they would form a synagogue, and these were the Hellenistic Jews who were just as passionate about what they believed, but also just as much against what Christians believed. And here Paul was propagating the same message, preaching Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and that infuriated them to the point of wanting to kill him, to the point of wanting to murder him. But when the brethren, verse 30, looked, heard of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. The brethren found out, and they took him, and they sent him away. When someone comes to Christ, it's not unusual for them to face conflict Sometimes it is a child and a family and the parents are against them. Maybe it's a relative. I've heard testimonies, and I'm sure you have as well, of people who are the first or the only believer in their family. And their family or their friends give them a very difficult time because of their testimony. Perhaps you've heard of a man named T.S. Eliot, who in 1948 was the Nobel Prize winner, in literature. In 1927, he was already a very well known English poet. He became a Christian and was baptized and confirmed. Prior to his conversion, T.S. Eliot belonged to London's Bloomsbury Group, a small informal association of artists and intellectuals who lived and worked out of Bloomsbury near the area of central London. But when the news of his conversion spread, the Bloomsbury Group responded with shock and even disgust. The writer, whose name was Virginia Woolf, the de facto leader of the group, penned the following letter to one of her peers, quote, I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead, to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church, and I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there is something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God, unquote. The hatred of Christians is not anything new. And one might expect that that might happen to them when they come to Christ. Certainly happened in Paul's life. His salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ evoked and produced a change. He elicited enemies. He faced skepticism and conflict. And lastly, though, his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ brought blessing to the church. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. Going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Why? Well, certainly there were other political and social changes around. Pilate, his fickle leadership, he had been ousted by Herod Agrippa, and his, Herod Agrippa's influence had expanded, restrained the Jews from Oppressing Christians as much as they would like, but primarily it was because their number one arch enemy, bent on the destruction of the church, was now a Christian. The church continued to increase, they continued to enjoy peace, and God blessed them. That is why we pray, isn't it? That is why we desire to pray for. Our leaders. That is why we desire to pray for those in our families who are unsaved. That is why we pray for the conversion of our friends, our co-workers, our relatives, our neighbors. We pray that God would save their souls. Despite how hard and angry they may be, God in His grace has the power to transform lives. That is why the greatest need of someone, is not education It's not their happiness, it's not good life, it's not money, nor is it even health. The greatest need of a person that a person has is salvation from sin through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When God saves a soul, he doesn't leave it that way. Instead, God enters and transforms that life. And that is why salvation through Jesus alone is the greatest need for our children, for our family, for our friends, our spouse. It's not money. It's not even love. The greatest need of people is to know Jesus, who he is, what he has done, to realize who we are and what we need to do. More than food and water, humanitarian aid, or relationships, people need the Lord. And God can change the hardest of hearts and use that person for his glory. Russell Moore recounts a memorable conversation with evangelical theologian Carl Henry, Carl F. Henry. Moore and some of his friends were lamenting, and I I have said the same thing, about the miserable shape of the church. And they asked Dr. Henry if he saw any hope for the coming generation of evangelicals. Dr. Henry replied, of course, there is hope for the next generation of evangelicals, but the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They're probably still pagans who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis or a Charles Colson. They were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors for the faith. Russell Moore added, The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be The misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now, unquote. The grace of God can radically change anyone's life, and God can use them for his glory, just as he did the Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And God, in his grace, can use us to change the world as well. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we look at our own lives, God, you know our hearts and you know our lives. And you know, Father, our own testimony for you. Father, I pray that you would grant to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have come to faith, grant to us boldness, grant to us courage, grant to us the resolve to make the name of Jesus known that salvation might come to the lost that, Father, you would use us. Set our priorities right, O God. Help us, O Father, to love you more than anything else in the world, that our desire might be to proclaim you, to make your name known. Change us, mold us, make us into witnesses for you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.